very convinced that the ways cities take shape is profoundly everybody's business. Everybody should be involved in that and have their say in that. And also when you're not a politician or not an urban planner or, or engineer or a, an investor or developer, That was the voice of Sophie van Proistegem, one of two guests of today's show. Welcome back to the Cities Reimagined podcast, the show where we challenge conventional paradigms of doing urbanism and discuss alternative futures. I'm your voice of choice, Johannes Riegler, and it is really cool that you decided to listen to the show once more. I'm now recording this intro a couple of days after the launch of Cities Reimagined, and I have to say that I'm blown away with all the feedback and responses I got from all of you. So this is really encouraging for me to keep on going and to continuing improving the show and also improve my yeah, personal capabilities with recording and cutting uh, podcast and holding the space and in interviews. So thank you so much um, for, to everybody who reached out. Please keep the feedback coming and let me know about your wishes and uh, what, you, what you expect from the show as well. So I'm back now from spending a couple of days in Bologna, Italy at the Public Space Academy workshop. Luisa Bravo, who you might know from the last episode um, on reimagining public space, invited me to get, get over there and give a talk on regenerative urbanism and how urban public spaces can reinforce the strong human nature connection and why that connection is actually needed. And... It was really nice to go to Bologna again, meet friends and colleagues from around the world. And I think Luisa did a fabulous job of setting up the Public Space Academy. And it was the first uh, on-site workshop in the terms of Public Space Academy. So watch out for the next one. Hopefully be there next year. I'm back in Vienna now for a couple of days before heading out to Madrid to spend some 10 days there. And... In fact, I was living in Madrid in 2011 for a couple of months and it was a very interesting time to be in Madrid because Spain was suffering at that time from a large-scale housing crisis which was triggered by the bursting of the country's um, housing bubble. So the economy was struggling and unemployment soared and many people in Spain found themselves unable to afford their homes which led to widespread foreclosures and evictions. So in this very frustrating and desperate environment at the time, the Occupy movement gained momentum, resulting in the occupation of protesters and activists of Madrid's iconic Plaza de Sol in May 2011. And that was the space where protesters rallied against the government's housing policies, demanding affordable housing and an end to the foreclosure epidemic. So the square was occupied for weeks and protesters actually installed temporary infrastructure on this very touristic square, including libraries and childcare. And it was an extremely fascinating and interesting uh, form of protest, a very positive one, a very constructive one to witness um, this reimagination of space, which manifested as a call for social change and economic change in Spain. Since then, I haven't had the opportunity to follow urbanism or urban stuff in Madrid. So if you have any, any hints on what is going on in the city nowadays, I would be very happy if you would let me know um, to check that out over the next days. So this personal anecdote about my experience in Madrid is actually a good segue to today's topic of reimagining just cities. So when we or people in our sphere talk about reimagining urban areas and cities, too often um, certain groups of society are left out and overlooked in the process. In this regard, some of the most inspiring people I met over the years are Jim Segers and Sophie van Broestegem from the Brussels-based NGO CityMind. 
So since 97, CityMind is questioning those urban paradigms, leaving people, especially those with low social economic resources and power out of city making. CityMind in that regard is a middle organization, somewhere in the middle between social, artistic, but also in the middle between residents, commuters, artists, investors, policymakers, and therefore they are seen as a medium through which all of these organizations can communicate. So in October 2022, I had the chance to visit Jim and Sophie in one of the neighborhoods they are working in, and they showed me around and showed me their projects and told me a lot of stories of people living in the neighborhood, but also how they work with these communities. So Jim and Sophie really show a high energy in their work and they are continuously involving with their practices. And it seems they are never standing still, but they also not only challenge urban practices, but they also challenge their own role in it. And this is something we can all learn from. So I'm very, very happy to have Jim and Sophie in one of the first episodes of Cities Reimagined because I think their work is just on point for this show. So let's get to it. Hi, Jim and Sophie. So great to have you on Cities Reimagined. How are you doing? We're good, fine. And we're, we're very happy to be invited. Thanks. It's an honor. The first time I got to know the work of CityMind was when I was living in Brussels for my studies back in 2009. And I was I was doing this Four Cities Urban Studies program. And back then, uh, this program organized a meeting or a visit with you or your colleagues. I actually cannot recollect who we met. It might have been you, Sophie. But the years went by and I moved away from Brussels soon after that. And uh, I came back quite often for work. So I had the chance to see somehow what is going on in Brussels in the city and talk to many people involved in uh, changing the city. Um, and I had the chance to talk to them regularly. Then years later, our paths somehow crossed again as uh, we started talking and exchanging from time to time on different things, among them also how to design European programs focused on urban research innovation in ways that they can be attractive to grassroots organizations, non-governmental organizations, neighborhood initiatives, social innovators, and so on. And at the same time, you were granted a project by Fundable JPI Urban Europe, the program I'm working with, uh, which brought us together again. And when I thought of people to invite for the Cities Reimagined podcast for the first season of the of the podcast, I actually immediately thought about you because you have so many interesting stories to tell. Wow. And I really find your um, your work highly inspiring. But can you tell us a little bit the story behind City Mind and what you do and yeah, what why do you do what you do? Wow. And then in 45 <laughs> minutes, Johannes. <laughs> um, uh, what we do is uh, maybe where we come from is an in a more interesting point, I think. In uh, late 1990s, we realized that there's a very interesting field between arts and activism uh, that inspired us a lot to do things at that time in public space. Um, uh, public space being very both contested and very lacking in Brussels, particularly in deprived urban areas. So we saw an opportunity to do things there and involve local communities, local residents. Um, ever since City Mind changed a lot, um, at the time, those who started City Mind had a background in activism. And what I always, in hindsight, think is that before City Mind, we um, were part of those activists that often resist change, uh, stop things from happening, stop large urban developments from taking place. Um, and then with City Mind, uh, maybe already more positive, we reacted to change, very much a, a policy position where you say something's happening and uh, we need to do something about it. We don't need to stop it. We need to do something about it. And now I think since 2010, 12 with City Mind, we're in a third phase, what I call anticipating change, where I think that it would be very interesting to find out what will happen soon, the transitions uh, we need, and how can we as citizens, uh, individuals, 
groups, communities play a part in those changes. So those three stages for me are very distinct within the development of City Mind. Um, for the moment, I describe ourselves as uh, uh, at the crossroads of architecture, urbanism, and urban activism still, uh, which shows the political size, the research interest, and the, um, the creative, the maker side. Uh, but maybe Sophie has another take on that. <laughs> well, yeah, to me, the bottom, of course, City Mind has been set up end of the 90s. And so we're almost 25 years now uh, from there. And cities are places that change. So naturally, our work focused on how cities take shape changes. Uh, a wasteland that offered a lot of possibilities at one point now is constructed and developed. So we are not the ones who are going to change chain them <laughs> themselves to resist and to keep that 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 wasteland as a place of opportunity. That's not what we do, and that frame uh, you framed that very well. Uh, so to me, that's very logical that our focus has changed. But the bottom line has always been and is very still very important uh, and has been always very important. Is that the the we're very convinced that the ways the ways cities take shape is profoundly everybody's business. Everybody should be involved in that and have their say in that. And also when you're not a politician or not an urban planner or, or engineer or a, an investor or developer, as it is uh, right now, they they decide how it's shaped often. And so we want to challenge that. And uh, that's the, to me, that's always been the conviction and the, the, the great motiv motivation. Um, yeah, I think that I think that's basically it. What we what what we really like to do then is to create spaces where uh, we can we can really go deep into a certain topic that is related to uh, environmental change, uh, most often urban uh, uh, sustainable development ish things are come up very often the last few years, like water, like energy, like. Uh, things that nobody questions that uh, need some thinking and need some change and so in the spaces we create that can be very tangible spaces in a in a neighborhood uh very very locally rooted uh spaces uh or it can be uh, uh organizational models where we where we invite people around the table uh people with very different views on the topics like we really uh, give ourselves the luxury and the people involved the luxury to look at things from every angle. And uh, people are not used to that. And that often gives you insights you didn't expect. Uh, you often meet like unusual suspects, eh? uh, people with expertise that is recognized. Uh, they often come, come in our project processes like, Okay, I'm. Uh, I have a. They, they have a, a, a. They they have a way like. Okay, I'm the all-knowing one. I've been invited, and I'm feeling generous, sharing my knowledge with you and shining my light on you. And then you see them change attitudes when they hear about mm -hmm. other expertise from unexpected angles, uh, like for instance, bioengineers in a water project. They really changed their way of talking when they bumped into people living on boats who have everyday knowledge about uh, purifying water, getting access to water because they don't have streaming water in their boats, et cetera. And then you can start talking and uh, start seeing things differently. And so that's our great pleasure, I think, to create these spaces and to create these encounters and to try to see things differently. Wow. And I, I really liked what you described, Jim, or also Sophie, this transition from where you started as City Mind as being an activist group. And I think you were also involved in the occupation of the train station in front of the European Parliament in, in the early 2000s, right? Which was also a very different time back then. You know, it was pre 9 11. It was uh, Geneva and Seattle. Uh, what was it? G20 protests were going very strong. It was a G7 at the time. Yeah, G7 at that time. How did you, I mean, you described how you developed that with, with City Mind more towards a um, positive way of working with different, with, with the communities. How did you, 
or how do you perceive that change on a larger level with within city making? Is that is that something only city mind incorporated to to uh, work more co-creatively, or do you perceive that that um, for example the city Brussels also more and more uh, reaches out and lets different voices into the development process um, of projects? We, we like to think we invited it, invented it all, including grain circles and everything, mm -hmm. but it wasn't us, no. <laughs> um, there is a shift. Uh, there is an awareness that you can't cast the uh, citizen's opinion just aside and ignore it, and that's a good thing. Uh, there's a lot of powers that be uh, talking the talk, not walking the walk, which which makes it very frustrating for us. And since it is our bread and butter, it's what we do every day, I think we tend to be a lot very in the in the cutting edge of this discussion and then being very disappointed when the broader field is not following. Um, that was very abstract, wasn't it? <laughs> it kind of was, <laughs> I yeah. Just you find something, somebody to make a drawing with. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I was um, trying to say is that... Um, there are certain words that recurrent over those 25 years who cover the same semantic field, probably, that is about doing things together, about involving those who tend to be excluded. And it used to be called uh, inclusion or participation. And I'm, I'm not sure that the word co-creation is so new. Um, for us, it's just another way of saying the same thing because the word participation got worn out for some reason. And so... Concretely, I think there's a shift, but I think there's still a lot of uh, way to go. Mm -hmm. um, let me try to make that more tangible, put some flesh on that skeleton. Take, for instance, on energy, where to us, it looked almost self-evident that if you aspire a transition towards greener, more local energy consumption, that you would also imagine ways of doing that in the more in the poorer areas of cities in the more popular areas um and that this could potentially be considering the fact that local green energy is cheaper that this could be a lever to also emancipate groups and involve them in the discussion on the condition that you inform them that they know what they're doing um we learned in hindsight that all the extra we put onto that is not what governments are interested in. If we can say we create a community that uses green local energy, fine, done, checked. For us, it's very hard. And that's when I, in the warm-up discussion, we talked about uh, contextualizing our work. That is a big job that needs doing. This uh, almost changing the paradigm um, of, of how we look at the problem, let alone how we deal with it. And that is the big struggle we are in front of, I think. I think it comes down to the, the the thing that when you're talking about something that is difficult now, uh, at best people get get uh, to answer some questions. Like the experts analyze the field and they ask questions and then you can participate in answering those questions. But we strongly believe and we, we, we work towards a way that people could ask the questions themselves, define what is problematic, what's the, the bifurcation that you're in front of and, 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 and see what, what options you have actually and make choices in them. And I think that's basically it. And that's, so we start at minus 10 <laughs> when you talk about the process of participation, we, we try to go way before that. I had the chance to here you talk about uh, your projects a couple of times, uh, especially on energy communities, uh, which is very inspiring. Um, also for very, for many people. I, I mean, it. We, Jim, you presented that at the launch of the Driving Urban Transition Partnership conference last year, and I, after the presentation, I heard many um, policymakers and others in the room talk about that presentation because it stuck with them because it was something different and I found it extremely important yet you described that it's difficult to make people realize the value of mm. this yeah. line of work um, that was just a comment can you describe a little bit how you work with the energy communities in a disadvantaged neighborhood what do you do and how do you work with the people there we we in 2018, we were 
we had a great uh, feel about doing something on the topic of energy. It was because of previous pro uh, projects and because of reading in the in the media, etc., and uh, people getting solar panels and us thinking, okay, but in cities it doesn't work one on one. You have your house and your roof. You put your solar pa solar panels on it. Solved because my house puts a shade on my neighbor's house, so uh, he can't do anything anymore. <laughs> That's not the idea. We were. Uh, talking about it, reading about it, we were we just uh, nestled our offices in the Midi neighborhood in Brussels, which is very dense, very diverse. Uh, it's uh, there's a lot of people living in 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 be, below the poverty threshold, but there's also a lot of uh, younger people uh, with a lot of resources coming here. So it's very mixed, and so it and there's a very lively uh, association network. So we thought it would be nice to 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 try things in this neighborhood, and let's talk about energy. And uh, by doing all the all the chats, and the, we met a lot of experts in different fields. And uh, we we somebody talked talked about uh, about the infrastructure, like the the high tension coming to the cities and then goes below uh, uh, the, the 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 streets. And there it's transformed in low uh, voltage. low voltage and distributed to one cabin distributes it to like a hundred or hundred fifty households. So actually, there's the you are linked as a neighborhood by cables. You can't see it, and you 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 collaborate on these cables without mm -hmm. knowing it. And so that was an eye opener to us like okay this energy thing and this very intangible uh, things that happen behind the socket they actually pre-exist and make pre-existing communities and so that would be really nice to work with like contacting people and saying hey uh, you're my cable neighbor <laughs> we when you put on your water kettle and I I do it too then we collaborate in a, yeah. in a way on the cables maybe we can talk together about energy and the use of energy and where it comes from, and maybe we can do something meaningful. <laughs> so to us, that was a starting point, something that was was very uh, made sense to us and, and the way we approach uh, these complex things by making them very tangible. And so, of course, there's a lot of energy cooperatives already in Belgium and in a lot of European places, uh, places in Europe, I mean. Uh, but it's most of all people already convinced that climate change is something you need to be dealing with and taking action and people uh, who believe in their agency and not the neighbors from the Midi neighborhood, for instance. And so to us, we, we really wanted to know uh, how the reality, the energy reality of our neighbors here would lead us to, where it would lead us to. And so... As you said, Jim, before the new player on the in the energy market, which are the the the, the energy communities, they are really a lever to involve people in important topics like how are we mm -hmm. gonna uh, produce our energy? Are, are we gonna do it ourselves? Do, can't we do it more locally and cheaper and greener? And so. Uh, for us, that was a, an ideal situation to really go to the neighbors and talk about the new possibilities mm -hmm. with them and to involve them in trying to make a concrete energy community project. But by your work, by doing so, you also kind of connect between the global, the big picture, the global crisis, the climate, biodiversity and, and so on crisis and the, the need to change and the very local everyday life of people in, in Brussels, right? Yeah, exactly. I think these global questions, they land somewhere also. And so what we like, of course, we talk about it, we read about it, we think about it, we sometimes panic about it, we sometimes laugh about it. But when you see at the very small scale, okay, what? how does that impact this neighborhood and these people, you and me here right now, what does it do to us and how can we deal with it? I think that makes it very interesting and very freeing also like okay if you see only the bigger picture then you're stuck but actually here and now we can do things absolutely it really tries to or it, your work really breaks that complexity down on the on the very local level and i that's why i find it so inspiring 
Well, I think I think really what 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 I've I've been working with a group of uh, uh, social tenants in a in one social housing block because that was the the least complex way <laughs> of trying to set up a first pilot project on energy sharing. It was the most clear uh, frame of doing that, and so we said, okay, well, let's try to really set up how energy energy will be shared in this block with the tenants around the table from day one. And so uh, the engineers were like, ah, it's complex. They're not going to be interested. Uh, but yeah, why not? Let's try. It's a pilot. And so people were were very uh, happy about having having this. Uh, um, they, they felt that they were given. Vertrouwen, is it? Yeah, it was a very important questions and the, uh, question, and they felt that they they were trusted somewhere to think about it and to try to understand the complexity of it and to make choices in it, and so we learned a lot together. We have to, we had to learn the nitty gritty of energy sharing, which is still very complex, and but we we managed to do so. So people got really the idea that they could have something to say in it. And so we made propositions to the landlord on how the energy sharing would take shape and they were accepted. And so they were like, oh my God, I have a voice <laughs> and this voice is uh, worth listening to because <laughs> uh, they, they are used to being marginalized and, and being helped. And even, even if, if it's not very explicit, that's an attitude you adopt also. And so... They were like, oh, we're a, a, an organized group now, and uh, we 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 understood what it's about, and we understood the, the opportunities for us, and so yeah, that's really something important, and that's really a shift in people's heads that, that I believe is crucial if we want to make a change. And Brussels, for instance, uh, in the regions, in is a region with one in three people almost living in energy poverty. So if we want to make an energy transition happen that makes sense and that is tailor-made to the needs of Brussels, then it, it, it would be it would be really silly to not involve their visions on how mm -hmm. energy should be <laughs> brought to their house and used and etc. Right. So your work really tries to make cities better or better places to live for everyone, I would say. And yet there tend to be challenges along the way because you, you know, you, you as an organization mm. don't fall into the into let, one category, I would say. Well, yeah. Let me let me first take you by the hand. Yeah. And, and with in my in my train of thought, which left off a while ago. Um, <laughs> the thing is, um, you mentioned a few. Uh, crisis um, and I think one of the things that always strikes me is who has the right to prioritize crises who has who has the right or the power to say now this crisis is the most uh, relevant uh, apparently somebody could decide that last winter the energy crisis was topping all other crises whereas the winter before it was an, an, a global virus that was the top crisis so we're working with a community who was always on the receiving end of these discussions they're not involved and um, I think what was mentioned before is one of the things we try to do is create spaces where those powers are a bit uh, questioned, shuffled, uh, sometimes even switched off. And that's why, as Sophie was saying, we often work in in-between spaces, in, in places we create. You, you yourself mentioned the um, railway station. Um, those are spaces that escape regulation very often. And recently I got very inspired by this thought by... Um, Buckminster Fuller, obviously one of our patron saints, um, who said that um, it was the same thing with seafaring people. They left off on the sea because it's an unregulated area. They could do whatever they want and they developed new practices, new ways of doing. And the most relevant ones were picked up on land. They were taken over and they became the standard way of doing things. But many of them just dis disappeared and never were never talked of. And I recognize I recognize that a lot in what we do at CityMind. We, we create spaces where regulation is put on hold for a tiny bit, where we can experiment, explore, give those who don't have much to say, oh, uh, for a short brief, for, for a brief interval, the same right to speak as those who normally decide, and then see what comes out. If the focus we give it, and that comes back to your question now, is we like to say we're a design practice. 
we make stuff and the making we call it prototypes because that is the word that people use now the people who have the money recognize the word prototype and that's fine we used to call it intervention but it's not working anymore the prototype is not decided in advance and that brings me back to your previous question like what is the difficulty of getting this work funded that is when we say we co-create we're serious about co-creating we know the starting point we know the broad dream that is maybe within the large energy field there is a practice to develop that levels that playing field between those who just consume energy and those who make energy and they can one of the things is to constantly talk about those who use energy and not consume them because that all already shifts the way of thinking we all use it and then um uh from those um we mean it when we say we want to co-create meaning the starting point is known we explore together uh with all those partners that means that the one who's at at the table because he gave the money needs to be prepared to question the outcome again to say we don't know where we'll end we know together that we'll develop practices that are meaningful will from which we'll learn which we'll put on every stage at the end because we think it's important to have those people involved but we can't promise you that if we would promise it that wouldn't be co-creation that would be execution and that i think is the very difficult thing uh, we make a lot of things some of them are relevant but we can't promise in advance that this will be the one now that was a deep thought wasn't it that was a deep thought so um but still <laughs> it is you're i really love how you describe how you are spanning boundaries between or off the given system, which of these paradigms we are working in. You, with this uh, metaphor of the man, most of the time man, going to the sea, you know, exploring what is out there, what is possible, and making that, um, I really love that met metaphor, explore the sea, and then see what's out there and make it included into your practice. But in coming back to your to your work on a very local ground, by pushing these boundaries and spanning these boundaries, you must run into a lot of challenges, very practical challenges. Well, there's practical challenges, and and so people will come up with a few in a minute, I hope. But uh, on a on a larger level, I think the challenge we come across at the level of um, a project is the same challenge you come across at the level of organizing a city is the same challenge you come across at organizing a family that is how do you deal with conflict with difference of opinion and um i think what could be interesting in the projects we do is we make certain conflicts very explicit and uh, we confront people who are used to deciding that people can disagree and so i think the ultimate transition goal should be finding new practices of organizing rather than a better laid out 15 minute circular city it's how do we deal with the conflicts how do we uh, respect other opinions and come to a, a shared conclusion rather than imposing or um, have a majority vote because it's the whole problem with referenda, where if 51% decides something, it's decided, whereas 49% is disappointed. So for me, the ultimate challenge, scale of a project, scale of a family, scale of a city, scale of a continent, is how do we deal with conflict? Now, on a more practical level, I think the energy community, and that's why Sophie can explain that better, it's not about finding a group and setting up an energy community. You come with a lot of things you need to learn, and that, I think was an interesting experience in, mm -hmm. in Sun Studio in particular. Yeah, what I was thinking about more, what is most common in, 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 in the different projects we did and the different topics we talked about is that we need to learn to speak a lot of languages, actually, because there's the expert view, the, the recognized expert view. And so it's important to us to, to, to talk together and to, to, understand how the landscape in water or in energy is shaped right now and what are the the cracks maybe in that or the over-regulated or the under-regulated zones in them because that's I think uh, that they come close to the in-between spaces Jim, is, Jim was already talking about 
we also want to hear uh, our neighbors, eh, our, our, our cable neighbors, <laughs> when we're talking about energy. And they don't speak that language, of course. Mm -hmm. And so that comes to words, but that also comes to uh, invitations you send. If it's too designed, then uh, a lot of our neighbors will think it's not for them. <laughs> or if we make it too like uh, uh, simple, our more uh, our more designer neighbors will think it's not for them. And we want to invite. We want to have them all around the table. So we're always. We're always uh, trying to work around these different realities, and 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 so we have to come up with different stories, different angles, different. So that's a big part of our work. It takes a lot of time. We 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 love doing that. That's not the problem. But so it's it's very slow. And and if you you want to start broad enough, then it takes time. And so that's that's I think uh, something that is difficult to make people understand that this is key to the work and and that you you really need to have the courage to take that time and to give us some confidence that something will come out of that and so that's a very practical difficulty uh then also when things are running and you have people uh willing to do something together or when you have a group uh coming uh, together to 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 create a very concrete action or a very concrete prototype building <laughs> or something, then, then of course you have, uh, we, <laughs> we always call them like, we, we have the craziest people coming over <laughs> first because people are not used to open spaces and yeah. people are not used to, to being free <laughs> and, and, and being able to contribute to the rules about how the process is going to take shape and so yeah that's that's when you mm -hmm. come to also how to deal with that and how to keep it open enough but not uh, conflictuous or uh, <laughs> or uh, there's also people more from the from the the activist groups maybe who are used to having very long discussions in long uh meetings but a lot of people don't have time for that, but we also want to involve them. And 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 there's a lot of people who are not interested in in, in meetings. They want to do things, and and while doing things, you talk to them and have information about them. So that's also something we need to really take into account. And so, of course, we need to organize get-togethers and meetings around the table and talking. But we also need to organize get-togethers out there in in neighborhoods and do things and 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 just maybe dig a pond somewhere <laughs> and while digging you can have people telling you amazing things about this space uh, where you're digging and and how it was shaped and the tensions and the questions and the and the good things about it that's also crucial i think if you want to make sure that everybody decides on certain issues that they're informed about those issues and that's often a mistake that's been made that um we've been told very often that you don't want to involve citizens in decisions on energy they don't know enough about it whereas i think the challenge we took on was to okay then we'll inform them and by creating this uh, non-regulated space we had the 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 self-confidence let's say to say to experts well explain it to them then teach them if you mm -mm. and and that's very confronting because if they can't explain it maybe they not don't know that well it's like a professor who doesn't who can't teach to an undergrad it's mm -hmm. not a good professor so it's a bit the same thing but if you manage to do it in the end you can have discussions with informed citizens so i think that's the extra legwork we need to do um but i'm lagging behind two questions i always <laughs> because i was answering a previous <laughs> question i'll do it anyway your question was, how do we describe ourselves? How do we see ourselves? Yes. And then I started talking about uh, design practice because we make prototypes. But I think what for me changed a lot or, or reassured us in a sense was meetings I had with uh, Ezio Manzini, who's a, a designer in Turin. We were invited to a short stint in Turin and he explained us what well, he became famous for open-ended design. Um was the idea, well, he always put it like um, error-friendly design. You start designing something, but hopefully there's something wrong about it so you can improve it and maybe it becomes something else. And for me, that was very reassuring because until then we were all always justifying the outcomes. Like we made this, but um, 
A famous example, uh, I'll try to be less abstract for once, <laughs> is um, we had the idea of creating a pavilion that captured rainwater and would transform it into drinking water. Sounds like a good idea. It's practically very difficult for many reasons. One that <laughs> you don't imagine, but it doesn't rain enough in Brussels <laughs> to capture proper amounts of rainwater. <laughs> and then rainwater is polluted. But at the time, the market is saturated now, but at the time there was no easy device to check rainwater quality electronically. You had these strips and uh, gave you a, a, a pH, but it was very approximate. So we said, why not start building one ourselves? So from this water project, uh, th there was a fork splitting off into electronics. And we started to do a whole project on smart cities. Like, can we build a tool that captures rainwater? Which technology to use? Which protocols to use? And before you know it, we were meeting the head of the smart cities pro program of the Brussels region saying, why are citizens not talking about smart cities? So the end goal, the pavilion, it worked and we actually drank rainwater, but for a very short time. But the project that forked off called the PACO test, started leading his own life and, and became rather influential in water management in Flanders. So from the idea of open-ended design, it's, if you wouldn't read it as open-ended design, it could be seen as a complete failure. You try to build a pavilion and you end up with a, with a computer you build yourself, failure. From our point of view, it's ultimate success because it forked off in something more relevant. Mm -hmm. So that's why we call ourselves a design practice and preferably an open-ended design practice uh, it's often well framed by a guy a dutch guy called hans van maak he's like a so-called uh engineer of change in a way <laughs> and he puts it like uh what you see happening even in 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 in, uh, in uh, processes of of uh, transition what you see happening is is most often very appropriate and but what actually really works most often is not appropriate at all. <laughs> and I think that's where we want to go. That's mm. we want to try something new. And so eh, it's out in the ocean. It's 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 in a it's in a it's in a space that is very contained. And so but there you should should really go beyond the appropriate way of working. <laughs> what would you advise anyone who wants to reimagine cities and contribute to alternative futures? I very much like the the phrasing reimagine because I think that's, that that touches the crux of it for me. Uh, discussion we were having um, in in the past days was I think a lot of solutions are not tested because people can't ima uh, can't imagine them or practices that are not being done because people can't imagine that it's that it's allowed that it's possible that it's doable. So reimagining cities starts for, for me from developing uh, alternative narratives other stories that people say this is so wacky and uh, it's very close to what i've been doing for the past 25 years i've been seeing people who constantly say this is so wacky i would not imagine drinking rainwater in brussels is that possible um so we have a, a plethora of those interventions people call wacky but the, the aim very often is to allow them to imagine that there is a world elsewhere um, so that would be my first invitation that do imagine, broaden your mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also think that that once you once you believe that it is possible to make things better, that you're not stuck any never actually. People are people are clever, people are resilient. Uh, that's our deep nature, I think. And so the sheer joy of being able to reimagine things is is super, super important to develop, I think. Not to let you put in a corner. Mm. <laughs> Bump into new insights, unexpected things. Uh, that's just pure joy. Mm. Nice. It's <laughs> even a, if you make mm. if even if mm. it's it's very uh easy to make mm. you believe that you're you're a fool. Yeah. <laughs> if you call things wacky, mm. maybe the advantage of that, of making things that wacky, that they, they, people can yeah. see them as not dangerous, actually. Because people don't see how the possibility of imagining to drink rainwater and to make that actually happen 
mm-hmm. could possibly sh- shuffle power structures. So mm-hmm. it has uh, an innocent feel. <laughs> it has an innocent frame, but actually the discussions you have to make things happen, shuffle power structures. I yeah, think. I love that. Thank you so much. And to I was, last... uh, just yeah. to add to that, a compliment I received when I worked in Belfast was... Um, uh, somebody said, um, "City mind, they think so much outside the box. I don't think they know there is a box." <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> but really, I, th- I think this 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 describes it ver- very well uh, because that is that is really what you do. There's no box for you guys uh, over there. Yeah. And um, yeah, coming coming to an end of this interview, where do you see City Mind go from here? You described in the beginning that you had different phases in your work over the, I believe, 25 years you're working. What are the wishes for the next 10 years and where do you go from here? One one of the difficult, difficulties we have as an organization is that we um, um, suffer a bit from the Peter Pan syndrome where we like to stay small and, and, and uh, it defies all definitions of success. Um, We've been through phases where we were an organization of 14 full-time people, but that's not what we wanted to do. And people said, wow, that was successful, not to us. And then at one point we had uh, four city mines, in, in one in Brussels, one in London, one in Barcelona, and briefly one in Milan. It's like, well, ultimate success, franchising. They said, no, that's not what we wanted to do. And now we have a balance sheet that hardly reaches 300,000 every year. So it's a very small organization. Um, But the difficulty is how do you define success for yourself to say, this is still, it has, this has the integrity we wanted it to have. And success is that other people, success is not similar city minds popping up all over Europe. Success is people with the same mindset popping up in different positions um that people who want to take this critical thought this approach to urbanism this inclusive approach to urbanism human centered take that to positions of power and i'm looking at you johannes (laughs) (laughs) the important thing is that um it's easy for us to to kick and scream and say things have to go different it's often very difficult to meet people who are willing to challenge the dominant discourse once they are in power and to say, okay, we can think of this differently. And so that's one thing I would like to see in the future happen. That is um, be able to infuse people in places of power with a different way of thinking with, with an open-ended way of thinking with a participatory inclusive way of governance. That's an important thing. Then on a very abstract level, what, what, um, interests me a lot at the moment is following our work on energy communities. During a talk I gave in in Oxford, I was approached by a professor who said, well, this for me is the ultimate example of the paradigm shift we need in transition. We should stop thinking about objects and we have to start yeah. thinking about processes. We have to see the world as processes. And an and energy community is not a local production center and consumption output no it's um copper atoms bouncing against each other in a network which connects people who use it but who are preferably also connected in other means in other ways so they can contact each other and talk to each other by doing that um fine-tune their their use of energy and ever since he explained that to me that was a real eye-opener because we tend to see the world as objects, even if we don't, we see projects as as contained objects, and we see funding programs as a contained thing with a start, an arch, and a finish. And preferably at the start, you like to know the finish. But if you say no, the the funding is not the start and finish. The funding is everything that happens in between. We meet people, we bifurcate, we split off, we fork, and. I think we're just at the start of this realization, but that is, if we could bring that into transition, we could also know that the ultimate aim is not a clean climate, because that doesn't exist, it's not a city without cars, because that doesn't exist, or a perpetuum mobile uh, economy, because that doesn't exist either. So rather than to hold our breath now, 
wait till it's finished, wait till every city is a 15-minute city, enjoy it while it's happening, and look at the process. I think that's the more abstract thought I wanted to share. Thanks so much, Jim and Sophie. I I love talking to you always when we have the mm -hmm. chance. I really enjoyed this. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you so yeah. much for being on the show, for taking your time. I think I will I will dive into the conversation one more time to unpack everything which was there. And there are a lot of forks, the forks you described, Jim, uh, to to go after for this podcast as well. This is a start. This is uh, not an end of the conversation. Right? And I would love to to have you back on the show at a later stage again. Thank you so much for for being here. Great okay. joy. Thanks Clap. a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. This was my talk with Jim and Sophie from City Mind in Brussels. If you liked what you were hearing, uh, please consider subscribing to Cities Reimagined on the podcast platform of your choice or follow Cities Reimagined on Instagram to get more background stories and more making of content. Or send me an email at johannes at anthropocene.city with some feedback or some questions or yeah, some wishes for the future of the show. In the next episode, I'm going to talk to Jonas Bülund and Josephine Rangel, both from Sweden, and we're going to talk about utopias and utopian urban futures. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to catch you soon. Mm -hmm.